0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program is brought to you by a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit korin.com. I'm Dave Arnold, host of Cooking Issues. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more.
2: Welcome to Japanese. I'm your host, Akiko Katema, a food writer and director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deep understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from our studio at Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see we see sushi at every daily in the supermarket, but it's what what is beyond sushi? What we hear dashi, ramen, izakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is still a mystery for many people, and I try to demystify. In this program with my cool guests. My guest today is David Kinch, who is the chef-owner of Maresa in Los Gatos, California. David won the James Beard Awards Best Chef Pacific in 2010, and the Maresa has three Michelin stars and has been named one of the best world's 50 best restaurants by Restaurant Magazine. And you can find a lot of Japanese influence on his David's menu. So today, we'll talk about his bachelor Japanese cuisine, his experience working at a restaurant in Japan, how he expresses seasonally like kaiseki cuisine on his plates, and much, much more. Uh, but quickly before we start, uh, Heritage Network is a non-profit organization, and uh, we need your support. So please go to our website, uh, heritagenetwork.org, and then uh, become a member. Thank you. And... Uh, Hello, David. Welcome to Japanese. Oh, thank you. Okay, So first of all, uh, for listeners who have not been to Manresa, can you tell us what kind of restaurant Manresa is?
3: Uh, yeah. Manresa is uh, in Los Gatos, California, which is uh, in the foothills of the Santa Cruz Mountains. It's about one hour south of San Francisco, uh, close to San Jose, close to the Pacific Ocean. Um, mm. It's kind of in the heart of Silicon Valley. Right. Uh, bedroom, which is kind of a... A strong customer base for us, a regular, uh, the local customer base. Um, Up above us are beautiful mountains that go down to the sea. They're covered with uh, small family-owned wineries. It's one of the oldest wine-growing regions in in California, so it's great to be a part of that Mm -hmm. and be surrounded by that. Um, The restaurant is, um, I think, a real product of not only who we are but where we are. We work with local products. Uh, we try to create uh, something that is uh, symbolic of where we're at, this special corner that we're, we feel profoundly blessed to be, be near with. And, mm. uh, we try to do a, a food that, uh, a food and cuisine that uh, is reflective of who we are.
2: Mm. Okay, and you opened it in uh, 2002.
3: July of 2002,
2: correct? Right, so 14 years.
3: Yeah, 15 years is our anniversary next year. Oh, That's wow. a big, big year for us.
2: Congratulations. Thank you okay and uh so how did you get into cooking uh
3: i was growing up in new orleans and uh i started working in restaurants after school jobs flexible hours that sort of thing and uh, new orleans is a great great place to fall in love with food and and restaurant culture Um, Mm. i don't think i'd be a cook if i hadn't spent time uh, living in new orleans Ah. so i'm very grateful for that Uh, and uh, i I started originally uh, in the dining room Uh, i ended up being enamored with the art of cooking and, and wanting to learn to cook. I switched over to the kitchen and uh, went to culinary school, um, moved back to New Orleans for a bit, uh, came to New York, spent some time in Europe, and I've been in California since
2: 1989. Mm, right. and uh, So before you opened the Maris in 2002, you worked at uh, many great restaurants around the world, including New York, San Francisco, France, Germany, Spain, and Japan. And I'd like to ask you about the experience in Japan. But first, um, I heard you worked at uh, the Quilted Draft in New York, which is now closed, but uh, which earned uh, the New York Times four-star rating. And I heard that the chef owner, Barry Wine's menu, was influenced by Japanese cuisine. Mm -hmm. So could you tell us about your experience at uh, the Quilted Draft?
3: Sure. I mean... uh, the Cgiraffe was a, was a big influence on me, uh, not only the culture in the kitchen but the food they were doing at that time. Um, back then in the 1980s uh, fine dining was uh, in New York was dominated by a lot of french restaurants It was, mm-hmm. it was exclusively a French restaurant town on the high end and the uh, the culture Giraffe was an unapologetically
4: mm-hmm.
3: american restaurant uh, they 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 kind of threw away the the pretenses of, of being something they were not, and they mm-hmm. celebrated the fact that there wasn't any rules. And good uh,
2: used to be a lawyer. Yeah, Barry's lawyer.
3: To... He was self-taught. Oh, yeah. um, um, he taught us to have opinions and and to to think about food in a different way, and think about how dishes came together in a way that's um, maybe as quaint now or accepted for now it was mm-hmm. was quite revolutionary. I thought at the time, and certainly. Uh, for me, um, I got hired when I was returning from you know, working in France and, and you know, the traditions and the dogmatism, you know, of, mm. of, of, <laughs> a, a classical French cuisine. So it was a real eye-opening experience. And uh, the first couple of years I was there um, in the early 80s, um, um, it was... It was an American restaurant, but it was certainly influenced by by, by European cuisines and, and, and French to a certain extent. But uh, around 1985, 1986, can't quite remember when. Uh, uh, during our summer break, uh, when we closed for vacation, Barry and his family went to went to Japan. Mm. And uh, when he came back and we reopened, he was a changed person. He was a <laughs> he, he was a, he was a changed man. He came back with boxes and boxes of. Uh, plates wow. and uh, you know a lot of the ceramic traditions of Japan he, br- he brought that back and he immediately wanted us to start serving the food at the quilted on these plates and back then everything was round and white and <laughs> limoges and, 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 and bone china that, that's what people did around town that's mm-hmm. what was expected of fine dining and but he brought back these memories of of, of the food that he had eaten and he started to incorporate uh, it into the menu, and for all the cooks, it was it was a, a real kind of slap to the face. Mm-hmm. Everything that we were doing—it literally happened after this trip and these these boxes that came back. Um, we shortened cooking times, uh, you know, with with meat and fish. We. Um, we served raw tuna, you know, in, in sashimi-like slices <laughs> mm. as opposed to like a tartare or something like this that was heavily seasoned. Mm. Um, we started using fresh wasabi. Um, uh, we started uh, soy sauce and, and shiro became a big part of, of, of what we were <laughs> using in the kitchen. And, uh uh, it was an amazing experience, and everybody caught the bug in the kitchen. Everybody was really into it. We started as cooks going out after work. We started uh, going to uh, this whole slew of Japanese restaurants that used to be in the uh, the West 40s. West 40s used mm-hmm. to be a lot of whole Japanese restaurants, uh... and. Uh, uh, I know there's a lot in the East 40s now, but in the West 40s on the other side of Fifth Avenue, there was uh, all these slews of restaurants that were open late down in basements where the food was just izakayas (laughs) that were were just really tremendous. And uh, it affected all of us. We had a great time, and it affected me so much that when my time came for me to leave the Quilted Giraffe, uh, I wanted to go to Japan and work. Mm. And uh, we had set up some connections, and I, I left the restaurant with Barry's Blessing, uh, oddly enough, I had three or four months before my position in Japan started, so I went to visit my family that had just moved to California, and uh, in Saratoga, which is right down the road from Los Gatos, which turned out to be you know a precursor of what was going to happen later. Mm. But um, uh, next stop was Japan. I left uh, New York to go work and live in Japan.
2: Right. So, well, you cannot just go, right? So, what, how did it happen?
3: Um, it happened through a, a regular customer at the Quilted Giraffe who uh, um, is a Japanese gentleman who uh, had businesses both in New York and San Francisco and, and in Japan. Mm-hmm. And uh, he had a hotel and he had a Western style restaurant there and uh, he needed a chef. He had a chef who was there now, but he was leaving to come back to the United States. And for me, uh, it was an opportunity. You know, I, I wasn't going to learn Japanese food. For me, it was more about. Becoming immersed and living somewhere else, mm-hmm. and being and becoming immersed in, in 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 the culture in this new part of the world that I'd be living in. And learning as much as I could from it, mm-hmm. and uh, right. it's not enough, just
2: on the plate, but uh, the mindset.
3: Of course, of mm-hmm. course, and you know, you, you're young. You want to uh, new experiences, and uh, it's the time to do it. It's nice. time to do it. And uh, funnily enough, it wasn't in Tokyo. It was in Fukuoka, which <laughs> was was uh, a little bit off the beaten path.
2: Right, you know, Fukuoka, so, it's the Fuku- largest Fuku-
3: city on Kyushu. It's
2: mm-hmm. at so. very south
3: yeah the southernmost of the four major islands and uh it was a great experience it was uh, uh it was a complete immersion mm. you know the staff <laughs> the staff was all japanese uh, um, and I got exposed to a lot everything from late night uh street food and stalls mm. all the way to uh some really spectacular kaiseki meals in Kyoto, taking the train up and and, yeah, and eating great meals, so it was exactly what I wanted. It was it was it was an immersion in mm. it, learning many many different things.
2: Right. So, how long did you stay there?
3: I was there for about five months. Oh wow,
2: mm-hmm. that's a very intense you know, and culinary you know, and the cultural.
3: It was, it, yes, it was a really great experience. It was you know I, I was going to stay a little bit longer. It was cut short due to circumstances by, beyond my control. But I came back to uh, I didn't want to return to New York, uh, so I settled back in California where I had family. Allowed me to get my feet back on the ground. And I started working mm. again, but I never really lost, you know, mm. what I found.
2: Okay, I just wanted to ask: uh, Is there any cultural shock in the kitchen or something? Because you're surrounded by Japanese chefs, and uh, Japan was totally new to you, right? So,
3: well, it, it's funnily enough, it was. Um, uh, I had staged in, I was staged, I had staged in Europe, ended up staging again in Europe uh, after returning back from Japan. And every kitchen I worked at, um, there was always one Japanese cook in the kitchen who was staging as well, and um, they were there to learn you know classic French food or working in french restaurants and um, they were always meticulous, uh, they were hard workers, their heads were down, and they had obviously the sharpest knives in the kitchen you know, they, they had they had knives that uh, Made everything else that we all had very, very primitive by comparison. Mm. <laughs> so, and, and uh, 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 they were going back. They they were working and they were going back and and cooking back in Japan, mm. you know, French and Italian food.
2: Right. I think a couple months ago, I think there was an article in New York Times that the Japanese how uh, French restaurants are dominated by Japanese cooks now.
3: Yeah, there's there's a, a slew of great restaurants right now that are cooking in a very contemporary. French style, uh, as French as any Frenchman could do too. Mm. You know, in in honor of the tradition, doing a great job. The Aye. food's are excellent.
2: Yeah, they they go probably more religiously traditional to whatever the master taught them, mm-hmm. uh, and then preserve instead of American mindset is to like come back and then you have to create something new by yourself. Yes. Right. So that's interesting. Um, but you know, w- what is the essence of uh, um, you know you learning from Japanese? kitchen uh, well, culture.
3: I was, you know, in terms of food, I was fascinated by the purity of, of the food. Food tasted of what it was. Um, uh, there was a simplicity to it, but it was a complex simplicity, as we know. There's a, there's a lot of effort that's put into the, making mm. something look effortless and very, very simple. Um, uh, the style was so deceptively simple that it became obvious that. Um, the quality of the ingredients was paramount to the success of a dish. You had no place to hide. There wasn't a thick sauce. Mm. There wasn't a lot of things on the plate to hide things. It was, you kind of put yourself out on a limb mm. that. Uh, this is what I have and how this dish is going to be judged is it's by the quality of the ingredients. And what drives quality of ingredients is seasonality. Mm.
4: Um,
3: and so it forces you, it's a style that forces you to cook with the seasons more mm. than anything else. And uh, of course I was fascinated by this. The other thing was the, um, you know, not to start talking about umami just yet, but uh, <laughs> uh, the, 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 the lack of fats, you mm. know, everything, Everything we taught were taught, you know, in Western cuisines was that fat is flavor. You know, the three families of fat: you had olive oil, you had butter, and you had pork fat. And you know, most Western cu- cuisines can be defined
4: mm.
3: by by these three fats. And in Japan, uh, it wasn't about fat. Um, they had all these great flavors. Things w- could be explosive and really, really balanced in flavor, uh, but. It wasn't because of their reliance on, on fat. And I wanted to know how they did that. That, that mm. I found intriguing, especially being in California and the way people ate in California, mm. as opposed to the East Coast, which was still kind of you know, being driven by a European model on what fine dining was. And um, uh, that's what I chose to explore and to try and figure out.
2: All mm. right, so interesting. Um, so you you're gonna say something about mummy? That's the replacement of the fat, you think? Yeah, I,
3: I think it has a lot to do. I mean, obviously dashi. You know, it's a, mm. dashi is 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 the key to almost everything that's done in in, in, in Japanese food, and mm-hmm. and um, you know, dashi is uh, you know, it's that complex that simple complexity of uh, uh, that complex simplicity. Excuse me of um, of uh, Umami, creating a synergy you know, To where something can be Not have a lot of fat, but can be very Satiating, it can mm. make you full It can make you satisfied uh, Yet, you know, the ability Not to feel leaden down and to continue To go about your day, being alert by mo- In mind, alert in body And uh, um, learning how to make correct dashi, understanding the, the principle of umami and amino acids mixed with the, the glycemic acids with the, with the, the, the kombu
2: mm-hmm. is,
3: uh, is pretty fascinating concepts.
2: Right. Because there's a synergy. If you have a kombu and if you have a bonito, there's mm-hmm. a synergy. Mm-hmm. Right? That kind of thing. Right. Well, I was speaking with uh, the food scientist from Japan yesterday and he said, as a key of Japanese cuisine, if you have uh, dashi soup at the beginning, and then the mummy stays in your palate. So that's the... Uh,
3: makes, per- makes perfect sense. <laughs> Something else I, I, I thought was fascinating, too, uh, and different, and it's, it's really interesting, is the use of bitterness uh, at the beginning of a meal as well. You know, a lot of times we like to serve things that are salty mm. here in, in America, you know, maybe to make people thirstier or f- feeling, them, you know, to, to get the palate going. It's actually kind of the opposite. I've always noticed that in a lot of meals in Japan, especially kaiseki meals, that they'll start with something usually like with a green, a bitter green. Mm. But, you know, there's an emphasis on bitterness and a complete lack of sugar uh, because bitterness is really the key to Mm. enlivening the appetite and preparing the appetite for a meal that's coming. And... uh, uh, Something that we try to use mm. is, is starting with something that's not salty but right. something has bitter in nature.
2: And <laughs> recently I read an article that it says uh, in Western cuisine, you eat a bitter salad like Italian or something at, at the end, and then by doing that, you create more sugar. So you, you tend to overeat the uh, dessert. <laughs>
3: entirely possible. <laughs> entirely possible. Um, you know, I mean, we use dashi at Manresa. Uh, I mean, you know, for me at Manresa, um, it's, I don't want things to be overtly Japanese in any kind of way. You know, If we use a, a fundamental tenet or principle, whether it's uh, based on umami or, or a course progression or the way we use a particular ingredient, it's important to me that it doesn't seem like, oh, we're doing a Japanese dish, but we incorporate it into the style that we do. You don't really know it's there unless you really, really dig deep. Mm. Uh, you know, because what we're trying to do is make food that tastes good and, right. and makes the guests happy.
2: Mm, right. But sounds like, uh, you know, as far as I've got your book, and then each dish looks like more simplified. Less is, less is more kind of approach and presentation. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's, uh, I would imagine, some kaiseki mine.
3: Yeah, I think so. I, um, You know, dishes tend to be small, not because we want to serve a lot of smaller courses, but, you know... Uh, you want kind of a less is more rule, you know, after a couple of bites, mm. you know, there starts to be a little bit of a fatigue with the with the familiar flavors and mm. trying to change things up.
2: Right. So what kind of uh, dishes do you have, uh, the Japanese-influenced dishes do you serve?
3: Well, we usually do a raw dish of some sort. We usually do a, you know, whether it's a crudo or a sashimi type of dish. Um, we use um, uh, not much fat right now. We have a... Uh, a, a garden dish, a salad dish that uh, has a lot of bitter proponents that served very early in the meal mm. as well. Um, we are doing a soup. We are doing a consomme that is like a chicken consomme, but it actually is dashi-based. We have kombu and bonito in along with uh, the, the roasted chicken bones. Mm. Uh, roasted chicken, especially the bones, has a very, very high natural umami, like mm. tomatoes and parmesan other western ingredients right. um, and then it has little dumplings that are flavored with the okinawan black sugar mm-hmm. in it along with the vegetables which is pretty interesting it has abalone in it too it's pretty interesting
2: wow yeah. <laughs> right now well that makes no. sense i've never heard that you know the japanese dashi mixed with the chicken stalks so. it, it can
3: be very very good
2: mm. yeah. right okay um, so uh, let's take a quick break here, and then when we come back, we'll talk about David's very unique and inspiring relationship with farms and uh, like Japanese kaisek chefs. So please stay with us.
1: Music for this commercial break is brought to you by Taxdar. And this track is called tienissimo short Corin's unique store in Lower Manhattan is home to perhaps the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan, plus the rarest natural sharpening stones and exquisitely designed tableware. They also host special events such as knife sharpening demonstrations and parties with New York's most famous chefs and tours. KORIN is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the implicit and elegance of Japanese culture to your table, be it in your home or in the finest restaurant. For more information, visit koren.com.
2: Welcome back. You're listening to Japan Eats, broadcasting live promo studio in Bushwick, Brooklyn. I'm your host Akiko Katema, and my guest today is David Kent, who is the chef owner of Maresa in Los Gatos, California, and which has three Mission Star restaurants. And uh, okay, so one of the core elements of Japanese cuisine is seasonality, as you talked. And uh, Kaiseki chefs say there are 24 seasons a year at their restaurants. Um, so in Kyoto, uh, for example, many kaiseki chefs have close relationships with local farmers, and Manresa is known for beautiful seasonal dishes. So, what is your philosophy about seasons and ingredients at the Manresa?
3: Well, we um, we try to be as uh, obviously we try to be uh, as honored the seasons as much as we possibly can. California is you know a little bit different; it's a little bit more Mediterranean. It's a, we're more dry then wet, mm-hmm. uh, than uh, you wet know, than a traditional spring, summer, winter, fall, even though we still do have that. And um, we're very, very lucky in California. I think it's one of those special places on the planet where we have great quality fish and meats, fruits and vegetables straight across the board, um, a great glow- growing climate. And we also have the culture about growing mm-hmm. and understanding the importance of the food that we put in our bodies. Um, that said, seasonality wins on all fronts. Uh, uh, you serve something in season, not only is the product the best that it can possibly be, but also tends to be the cheapest mm. it's going to be, because you're not importing it, you're not trucking it in, you're not flying it in. So it's a win-win situation. People really don't have any excuse mm. to not serve a menu that's seasonally based.
2: Right. But um, like, you know, Kyoto Kai like, Chef 24 season, I'm sure there's so many produce coming one after another
3: yeah I mean it's not like um, one day it's spring then the next day it's summer (laughs) it doesn't it's not it's not like a door opening and closing there's Mm -hmm. you know things fade in and out Um, uh, things uh, you can have a couple products you can have like asparagus and peas people say they're both in springtime. The mm. fact of the matter is, they're at very different parts of springtime, one, one very, very early and another kind of mid to late. Mm. So, um, you know, this, this concept of micro seasons, you know, 24 seasons, it, uh, it's really about a starting, beginning, and end and the phasing out. And then you throw in the vagaries of weather patterns, you know, where you have, a, you know, not that much rain in the wintertime or a, a longer than usual summer, and it kind of throws things mm. a little bit differently.
2: Right. So, um, so you work with farmers, right? So yes. it sounds like very close by.
3: Yes, everything, uh, you know, we, we either pick up ourselves or are delivered by, by the farms themselves wow. to the restaurants. <laughs> and, and, you know, we have, we have one menu. Uh, we don't need the diversity of product that we had maybe five years ago but we need more of specific products that are in season. So mm. that's working out really good for us right now.
2: Okay. So you can feature one uh, item kind of themed menu, like corn? or
3: Very so, much so. And, mm. and that, that's, that goes a long way toward, that's, that's a big part of how we develop menus, too. We don't necessarily think of dishes. We tend to have a great example of something that's in season in front of us and we work backwards that I don't want to say backwards but we kind of work from that as a starting point mm. into how the dish develops
2: okay so um do you work um how do you work with the farmers that they bring you items or you ask in advance
3: uh, that we ask we we work with them on what's planted what goes into the ground um and of course they have ideas about things that they're passionate about growing and uh, we try to be flexible and understand what what they're working with and. Mm. Uh, and, and uh, that's part of the fun. There's not many things that we don't like working with. Mm,
2: right. So, so actually, they, it's kind of a collaboration, right? Very
3: much so. Mm, Very much so.
2: That's interesting. It has to be. Right. And because so you're so close to them, I'm sure that you can, you know, like usually in the market or the bigger market, Through a food distribution company, you don't see that Michael season, right?
3: No, no. You just see a box. Mm. You see a box, or you know, a plastic or cellophane sort of thing. (laughs) Right. It's nice. It's nice to get things that are you know still a little bit dirty. The roots are dirty. Mm. Um, They're they're not cold because they haven't seen refrigeration. You know, they've been picked in the morning and they're they're packed and and they're driven to the restaurants. It's it's very special. It's an intangible. It's one of those intangibles that make things great as opposed to good.
2: Mm -hmm. Right. And I heard that it keeps you healthy because of a lot of good bacteria Uh, attached to vegetables.
3: Entirely possible. (laughs) Right.
2: Yeah, yeah, so um, the... The farms you work. With, how far are they usually?
3: Uh, the two that we're working with now, one is, it's up on Zelman Road, so it's about eight miles away, and the other one's on the other side of the hill, up the coast a little bit, so it's about uh, twenty-five miles away from the
2: show. Wow, the dream of chefs, I think. It's,
3: it's nice. It's right. nice.
2: Okay, and is that why you have only one tasting menu because of uh, the flexibility? I think, well,
3: it's um, we kind of it's been an evolve. it's been an evolution getting to the one menu I mean we used to have a couple menus in an a la carte and slowly got smaller and smaller it, it, we became more focused on on, on particular dishes and the in the experience we were trying to create with guests uh, right now uh, what we're We want the menu to be just basically a distillation of what we feel is the best that we can do that day. Mm. Not only ambience and service, but the food, the product that's available, and the menu that we put together. Um, We have, uh, of course, in this day and age, restrictions and allergies are a big part of, of... you know any restaurants customer base mm. uh, and we work very very hard into not saying no within reason not saying no so we're, we're always creating variations of dishes and or substitutions for that mm. so that keeps us busy
2: right i'm curious though like one day you found something like mm, i don't know what to make out of this vegetable or something like that
3: no i don't think that. that's <laughs> not you know it's a good team we have a good team we're we're, we're inspired by where we are and what we work with. We're inspired by working with each other. It's good. And uh, it's a spirit of collaboration. And we all like going to work. We all you know, are very passionate about what we do.
2: Mm, okay. And earlier you said uh, you're proud of being a part of that Los Gatos area. Yeah, pretty I... much
3: so. And I, I think it's important to state, too, you shouldn't be afraid of making mistakes. You know, mm. We all make mistakes. I think we all tend to learn from, you know, trial and error working with the product when you're trying to create something new
2: mm, right and in kyoto um they have a native vegetables called kyo it's about like 35 different types mm-hmm. and uh so in los gatos do you have any native produce that kind of um terroir? uh
3: native produce um you know, what grows really well where we are are brassicas. We have cold nights. Mm. Uh, we have cool nights. About the, you know, the ocean is a very tempering influence. So warm days, very strong Sundays, followed by cool evenings. It's one of the reasons why wine grapes do grow mm. so well there. And for this kind of product, uh, things like uh, garlic and broccoli, artichokes, uh, Brussels sprouts, um, all different kinds of lettuces; those have always been the, um, you know, the, 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 the iconic crops of the central coast of California.
2: Mm, right. So um, I'm kind of getting jealous because you have everything, and you know. <laughs> well,
3: we don't have everything. You know, we, we don't have everything, but uh, it it could be worse.
2: It right. Be worse. Yeah. For instance, uh, you know, Blue uh, Stone Barns by Don mm-hmm. Barber. They grow everything by themselves, which is the dream of chef or any That's business, That's right? But instead, most of us go to Union Square Market and then you cannot get everything mm-hmm. from the market. So, um, what do you think is the uh, importance of uh, the relationships between chefs and farmers in uh, more than?
3: Uh, well, it helps to be connected, it certainly helps to be connected. You know, uh, chefs can use their relationships with farmers to be a source of inspiration Mm. uh, for not only what they're producing now, but, you know, in anticipating what's going to be what's going to be growing later. Mm. Um, Farmers, you know, being a farmer is tough. It's a it's a hard profession. Mm. And... uh, yeah, but I also the impression I get, too, can be very, very satisfying. And I think to them it is it gives them a certain sense of um, security and perhaps uh, a good feeling knowing that uh, uh, what they're growing is going to be sold, mm. it's going to be used, and treated with respect that it's I'm not all for naught.
2: Mm. Well, it sounds like, uh, as far as I, I heard from you, you encourage farmers to try new things. It's kind of mutual support system that you have
3: yeah it's we can all benefit
2: mm. so are there many chefs in what's doing it
3: um I don't know any off the top of my head you know mm. kind of wrapped up in what we do
2: I mm. well, hope it's going to be the direction
3: that would be great
2: right okay and uh, so you had a fire at Manresa in 2014 unfortunately but I heard you gained a new perspective from the experience so could you tell us about that
3: um, yeah, the, we we had a fire in July of 2014. We reopened in uh, January of 2015. And um, looking back at it now, um, you know, I thought we did a very good job in utilizing that time. Uh, we were very, very busy when the restaurant was closed. I think we were busier than we've ever been, mm. uh, certainly in the last three months going before opening. I think chefs who tend to be naturally curious and, and, and concerned about what they do and concerned about the guest experience, you know, we're always thinking, we're always restless. We're thinking of ideas about how we can improve ourselves and, and improve the guest experience. And a lot of times, there just simply isn't enough hours in the day with everything, mm-hmm. just day-to-day operations. And the closure from the fire and during the rebuilding process it gave us an opportunity, me and, and, and the team, the managers, Uh, We had a chance to think through every step of the guest experience from them entering the restaurants, uh, what they see, what the greeting is, through the ambiance and the service, the food, all the way up to when we present a check and uh, we say goodnight to them at the door. Mm -hmm. Uh, Every little step is, uh, do we make eye contact? Are our smiles genuine? Is this really the kind of plate that we want to serve on this? Is it awkward to eat with this? Mm. You know, after they eat this course, where are they going to put the fork? You know, <laughs> we had we actually had the opportunity to think about all these things, and we did, and we did, and we tried to we tried to incorporate uh, what we learned about ourselves back in when we reopened. Mm,
2: that's great. So there was a reason, maybe. The...
3: <laughs> well, uh, I, I don't. I hope that wasn't the reason, but. Uh, um, um, I think it was a good use of time
2: right yeah. so that was the point I uh, was at 12 years so it's a good time to review it's like um, um, every used to close six months yeah, I year. mean
3: it's you know in in the restaurant business that's that's certainly middle aged you know if you're around 12 years that's we're gonna be 15 years old next year that's that's a lifetime in the restaurant mm. business
2: right and you just we uh, earned three Michelin stars for 2017
3: uh, yes we we got uh, we were awarded three stars last year 2016
2: right. so congratulations thank you right. and uh, so um, how many times have you been back to Japan since you came back from a job in Fukuoka
3: uh, I didn't go for a period of years because I was working and and that sort of thing but starting in 2008 I've been going back once or twice a year ever since wow. yeah I'm actually going next Friday so. wow. <laughs>
2: So, um, but when you go, uh, what kind of restaurants do you go to? Uh,
3: I like to try a little bit of everything you know it's i 'm not you know I love sushi, but i don 't need to eat sushi five, five days in a row <laughs> i don 't think anybody would. I try to bounce the experience out, uh, try new things, um, both high end and low end uh, i 'm going to Hokkaido on this trip for the first time i 'm really mm. excited about that. Um, That's
2: a whole other bounty. Yes. Oh, yeah.
3: uh, That's one of the great things about Japan. A lot of people don't realize is um, uh, how regional it is. Mm. Um, uh, You can be – every prefecture, you know, seems to have its own specialty, its own particular style sake. Uh, They make uh, – uh, Yuba in a different way than maybe, mm. and I remember having this conversation asking about a product with a chef, and he'd never heard of it and I found it really hard to believe that he hadn't heard of it, but then he was talking to another chef's friend, and he was kind of like, oh yeah that you know they they do that in nagoya <laughs> you know kind of thing and I was like well that's that's only hundred and fifty miles away from here mm. but and it's kind of like France, you know the difference between Provence and uh and Brittany is only, you know, it's, it's just a couple hours drive and uh, uh, the, how marked different what they drink, what they eat, the cheeses that they make, mm. how different they are. Right. And uh, you have the same thing in Japan. You have this marked complex regionality that if you really want to dig into Japanese food and not just be in Tokyo and not just being, you know, the the, the, ur- the urbane environment of Tokyo and the classical kaiseki and... In Kyoto, but if you go to, uh, you know, Kagoshima, Hmm. or you uh, go to outside of Kobe and along the the uh, the Sea of Japan side, Kanazawa, you go up to the Rishiri Islands off the northern coast. You know, it's it's. You'll, you'll encounter food that is unmistakably Japanese but also completely different from not only anything you've ever had before mm. but what you had the day before when you were someplace else
2: Right? yeah I totally agree and then I think their mindset is you have to preserve something traditional and they have a mission
3: very much so mm. and I think there's of course Kyoto is a big part of that uh, you know and, and preserving you know what they perceive as you know the cultural traditions but I've noticed especially in Tokyo I've noticed in the past, eight or ten years, they're really starting to, you know, I don't want to say experiment, but embracing outside ideas and, and using them very naturally mm. uh, in, in food that is still Japanese. I think that's great.
2: Mm. Do you have any uh, example of that? Um,
3: well, um, uh, you know, there's some chefs. Uh, there's a chef at a restaurant called La Uh, Shinobu Name I think Mm -hmm. his name is and you know he spent time uh, cooking in England and France and the United States and he's gone back and his food is western but it's also Japanese at the same time it's hard to describe but the way he uses the product Mm.
4: um,
3: on the plate it's really fantastic it's more of a feel, more of an an intangible kind of feel to list exactly what's happening Mm. um I think it's great. I think it's great that in the past 10 years we've seen a tremendous amount of Westerners and Western cooks. It seems like a door's been opened mm. and um, uh, more people are going to explore. And, I, and naturally, you have an exchange of ideas.
2: Right.
3: Uh, Interesting. I mean, it makes sense.
2: Right. Because I think it used to be like we, we talked earlier, you know, Japanese chefs work outside the country, come back and then worship what he learned.
3: Uh, I, I'm... I, you know, it's a, it's a generalization, but my feeling is that the the best French restaurants and the best Italian restaurants in the world outside of France and Italy are probably in Japan. (laughs) Mm. It's, it's, it's hard to argue with that.
2: Mm. Right. But then sounds like all those uh, chefs conference, those things may be helping to open their mindset.
3: Very much so. Very much so. And I think, you know, it's, it's funny, uh, but, uh, you know, 15, twenty years ago, if you wanted to travel Japan and explore and eat there wasn't a lot of there wasn't a lot of reference mm. uh, certainly in English there wasn't a lot of reference and it's daunting and the language and, and 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 the alphabet uh you know especially you get outside of Tokyo you know you get lost really really quickly <laughs> and so it's daunting you had to make a real effort to mm. explore as opposed to maybe being on a tour or something like this and Something happened. Something changed. I think you know. I think uh, the Michelin Guide of Japan being published in English was a was a big deal because you had uh, great restaurants where they listed addresses, phone numbers, hour opened, mm. and a picture of the doorway, Fine. which was always you know, <laughs> you know, finding the place is half the battle. So all of a sudden, you had this you know something kind of stripped away the veneer of the uh, of the daunting aspect of going to eat at these restaurants. It mm. Changed a lot. And, of course, with the Internet, you see a lot of things online now, too, Tabalog in English and that sort of thing, where right. people can explore and get a little bit deeper into the food. And people are obviously liking what they're finding.
2: Right. By the way, um, the first Michelin, Kyoto, was rejected by uh, Kyoto Chefs. So. Yeah, yeah,
3: but but not anymore. <laughs> right. Yeah, they started <laughs> yeah. to
2: realize how valuable it is. Yeah. Right. So and you, you said you're going to Japan for I heard that you for the Relay Chateau Chef Congress. Yes. So it's gonna what is it?
3: Uh, well Relay and Chateau is a, a restaurant and hotel organization started in France. Um,
2: the world the best restaurants and hotels.
3: Yeah it's 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 a pretty It's a pretty prestigious organization. We're we're really honored to be a part of it. We were voted in last year. And every year, all the properties uh, get together in Mm. in a different location. And this year, it happens to be Tokyo. So uh, that's where we're going over there. And it's going to be great because... um, uh, Though there are a lot of Relais and Chateau properties in Asia, and there are some, some beautiful ryokans that are part of uh, Relay and Chateau, uh, for a lot of people and a lot of the property owners who are gathering there, um, they are realizing what uh, Japan, the art of hospitality in Japan, can offer to their businesses, mm-hmm. and also the power of the Japanese traveler, you know. Uh, you know japanese in um, in California we have a tremendous amount of, of, of Japanese guests coming through you know we're mm. we're pretty close relatively speaking i mean San Francisco' is closer to Tokyo than it is to paris right. so uh um you know Japanese travelers that we see you know they're they're educated they're sophisticated um, uh, they're well traveled um they they know what they want. Mm. And they're great guests. So I think the reason why Relay and Chateau is in, uh, in Tokyo this year is, is to, to continue that relationship mm-hmm. uh, between, between um, uh, Japan and, and the hotel guests.
2: Mm. So you're planning to do something outside the Congress?
3: I'm going to Hokkaido. Going up, going up to Sapporo for a couple days.
2: Okay. It's right. so a skiing season coming up.
3: Yeah, I won't be skiing. I'm going to be eating.
2: Okay. So. <laughs> okay. So, I look to your report? Yeah. Uh, so, what's your plan?
3: Um, well, it's, it's a fairly short trip. We're going to go over and work for three days and then a couple days up. Uh, that's pretty much it. Mm. But nights are free. We have a couple of nice meals play, uh, planned out. Mm. Um, I'm visiting a couple of... Um, uh, Favorites, and I'm going to a couple of places I haven't been to before that have been recommended. Um, my favorite bar in the world is there, is in Tokyo, so I go. Wow! Uh, a place called Jus de Peche. I don't know. It's in, it's in Roppongi. Really? Yeah, it's very, very nice. Yeah. Oh wow!
2: I have to check that out.
3: Great, great whiskey collection.
2: Mm, yeah. Including Japanese whiskey. Uh, of, course. <laughs> yeah, of course. Okay, so uh, yeah, please come back and talk more about uh, your experience in Japan.
3: I'd love to. All you have to do is invite me.
2: I will definitely. So thank you for joining us today David.
3: Thank you very much Kiko. Appreciate it.
2: So listeners if you'd like to know more about David's activities um please visit maressa restaurant.com. That's maressa M A N R E S A restaurant.com. And if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for guests or topics of the show, please contact us at Japan Needs at org, And Japan Needs is live at 3 p.m. on Mondays, always available at heritagevideonetwork.org, iTunes and Stitcher podcasts. And please go to iTunes and Stitcher and write a review. We really appreciate your feedback. And today's show was made possible by Corinne. And our engineer is PLBNM. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week.